Welcome to the What's Your Ethos podcast. Hi, I'm Peter Colas, the CEO of Ethos. Today, I talk with J.C. Bruckner, the U.S. CEO of SCORE Global Life. SCORE is the world's fourth largest reinsurer, offering its clients a diversified and innovative range of risk management solutions spanning life, health, and PNC. We discussed creating value in the reinsurance markets, delivering value-added services to overcome commoditization, bridging the protection gap, and the power of a team. Let's listen in. Welcome to the What's Your Ethos podcast, where we interview the leaders from insurance carriers, distributors, and insurtechs, tackling some of the thorniest issues in the industry. Hi, I'm Peter Colas, the CEO of Ethos, and today we have a remarkable guest joining us, J.C. Bruckner. He's the U.S. CEO of SCORE Global Life. J.C. is a passionate advocate for protecting lives and closing the protection gap, ensuring that more individuals have access to the insurance coverage they need. SCORE is the world's fourth largest reinsurer, offering its clients a diversified and innovative range of risk management solutions spanning life, health, and the PNC business. And JC has amassed a wealth of experience in sales, marketing, risk management, and just executive leadership. I'm really excited because he brings a unique perspective to the table, despite not having been a traditional actuarial or finance background. And it's a privilege to sit down and talk with him today. JC, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Peter. I really appreciate it. So, you know, despite being the USC of a reinsurance company, you're not an actuary or an underwriter, and you didn't have a typical finance background. How did you end up in insurance? It's always a weird path. Usually people have an uncle that got them into it or, you know, what's your story? Yeah, it's pretty similar to that, I think, particularly reinsurance. I think everybody who's in reinsurance kind of stumbles here. Nobody goes to college thinking, I want to get into reinsurance, particularly in the life side. It's pretty obscure. So for me, I honestly graduated from college. I had a business degree emphasis in management information systems and wasn't really sure what I was, uh, what I wanted to do. I was thinking, you know, a, a systems analyst training program is probably what I would have done. And I was approached by a, a, a guy who was at a recruiting day, my last semester of college. And, uh, convinced me to come work for MetLife in a management training program is what he called it. I found out pretty quickly that it was selling life insurance and it really wasn't a true management training program, but he, he had convinced me that it would be. But I tell you, I learned a lot from that experience. You know, you had to put your list together of a hundred family and friends that you're going to approach after you get out of the training that we did outside of Chicago. And you really learn what, you know, what, people are all about, how to engage and connect with people, what their needs are. And I, it was an invaluable experience to do that for a year. And towards the end of that, I was, you know, realized that that wasn't a career for me. I have a lot of respect for agents because, I mean, that they're working 24-7. I mean, everybody is a prospect. There's, there's an opportunity no matter who you talk to. And for me, I wanted a little bit more separation, I think, between my personal life and my work. And so I was thinking about looking uh, for a systems analyst job, a training job somewhere. A good friend of mine was in my hometown that I was uh, living and working out of in Iowa. And uh, we were having drinks, hanging out one night. And he said, well, if you're really interested in my, you know, my dad, I was interested in moving to the Dallas area. And his dad had uh, lived there for a long time and had a lot of connections. So I contacted him, hoping he could set up some interviews. And 
turns out he was the head of uh, sales and marketing at a small reinsurance company in the U.S. that was just kind of starting up. He had a job he thought I might be interested in and, you know, came down to Kansas City to interview. And here I am 35 plus years later, still in the reinsurance business. That's amazing. I feel like selling life insurance is, especially for a young person, is an amazing opportunity to develop emotional intelligence and just mature as a person, you know, peering into human nature and the, you know, anxieties and, you know, just fears of a, a typical family. It's really a, a vulnerable, you know, position to be in. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. I mean, you really do grow that that ability to connect emotionally with people to understand how people are feeling and what their fears are, you know, that sales opportunity, that experience was invaluable. I think that I still use some of those tools, you know, when, when I lead and manage people, but uh, I wouldn't trade that time for anything. And so before becoming the CEO of SCORE USA, uh, you helped lead Generali USA, which is part of Italy's largest insurance company. How did you come into that role? Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I'd made a couple stops along the way. I'd worked for this small company, Francona, that was one I mentioned uh, that I joined in Kansas City, and I worked there for 10 years, you know, in sales, and then had, uh, you know, the marketing and sales area reporting to me. We were acquired by a GE Capital company, ERC, and so they offered me a job uh, kind of running their life business in Chicago, so I moved there. I really didn't have much of a presence there, but kind of built that up from really very little uh, business in that region to having it be the largest producing region. Worked there for a while, for four years, and then, you know, felt like I was kind of stalled out a little bit and was approached about a Six Sigma job within GE. So I went to work uh, in that uh, position for eight months. I learned a lot. That's a lot about how to lead people who aren't reporting to you and how to run a project and a lot about the use of data and decision making, which before, you know, I think I was more intuitive based where during that Six Sigma experience, I was working to become a black belt and really using data to help make your decisions. And then from there, I decided to get back in the business, was approached by Transamerica Re lived in Charlotte, running their sales operation there, and then the opportunity to come to Generali. So I had a lot of you know, growth opportunities along the way that took on more leadership responsibility, worked for a big reinsurer, Transamerica was very big, but then going back to going to a small company, kind of back to a small company uh, and bringing that knowledge that it accumulated over time to a company that was operating mainly in the small insurance company market and bringing them more into the mainstream and helping them grow. So it was a good opportunity to, for me to bring that knowledge to Generali and to you know, take the leadership step to kind of like a next level and help that company, you know, help the team move into a market that traditionally they hadn't been, uh, been in at all. Oh, amazing. So JC, the average uh, listener knows what reinsurance is, but can you describe what really creates value in life reinsurance? How do you grow to be scores size? You know, obviously acquisitions is one way, but like, how do you really create value over time in life reinsurance? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think, you know, score became the leading life reinsurer in the U.S. market, both in terms of new business and volume overnight through these acquisitions. But I don't think we're really adding the value that we wanted to add or needed to add to be 
a, a really top reinsurer. So just because you have more business than somebody else doesn't mean you're really the, the value-added reinsurer or somebody who's looked at as you know the company you want to go to for support. So for us, it was really trying to find those things that add value beyond the capacity that we provide in the market. We didn't want to be known just as a, you know, a cheap capacity player. There are certain things we needed to do to connect with our customers in a way that's more meaningful than just the volume that, that we take on from them or the capital support that we might provide. So for us, it was really trying to understand what's of value to our customers. We felt underwriting is something that's our core skill set. And what can we do to better understand underwriting in the market? And uh, you know, what adds value in the underwriting process? How can we accelerate the underwriting process? What are different tools we can bring to the table? Knowledge and expertise, kind of looking at the whole market. And that's something that a reinsurer is really in a unique position you know, to be able to build these relationships with a wide number of companies in the market, kind of learn from all those experiences and bring that knowledge and expertise to our customers. Because we all think that every company's out there exploring the universe, but they're not. They're usually caught in their world and doing things the way they've done things. So they don't have as much outside knowledge as you think they might have. So for reinsurers, it's important for us to you know, explore, to learn, to grow with not just our traditional partners, but today in particular, companies like Ethos and other companies that are really out there trying to innovate and grow, learn from you, bring people together, bring partners together, and kind of insert ourselves in that process. So to me, it's if we can get to a place where, you know, really building something with our customers, and then reinsurance is kind of an output from that you know, that project together and building something together, whether it be a product, whether it be connections in the market, and then reinsurance just kind of comes from that as opposed to just looking at it from a traditional, you get an RFP, you quote on the business, you hope yeah. to have a good enough price to be accepted. So it's that, that true partnership, I think that's, that's really important that sets a company apart from just being a capacity provider and really turns them into a, a true partner. That makes sense. It's, you know, so for our listeners, there are five major life reinsurers that account for 71% of business. SCORE, Munich Re, Swiss Re, RGA, Hanover Re. And it's a really competitive market. And it could be perceived as these companies are bidding for a commodity, absent the offering of services, knowledge, tools, et cetera. And I guess, have you found that these offerings and the wisdom that you bring has allowed you guys to preserve margins in a way that, you know, you otherwise wouldn't be able to. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that's always a question, right? If you're, if you're doing value added services and investing in something other than just putting together a really competitive quote, are you getting the right return for that? Yeah. And, and I think we are, I mean, one, it's building relationships that open up opportunities for more if you're doing things well that are far beyond just the capacity you provide. It's a lot easier to move away from somebody if all you're doing is providing capacity and price. But if you're viewed as a real partner and are a key piece of building products and growing things with them, it's harder to move away from that. And, and, I, and I do think, at least I hope to think so, our, our customers would answer that way that, that yes, we look at SCORE 
as somebody that we give an opportunity to stay in a pool at a price that maybe isn't as competitive as you know the most competitive prices. We understand we still have to be in the ballpark. You can't, you know, you can't be outside of the range, which impacts their profitability. But if you're on the ground floor for helping to build that product and incorporating that into the price of the offering, then I think you have more opportunity to get, you know, to get a better margin. And over the last 20 years, has client relationship been just as important? Is it more important? Is it less important today? Like how overall, how's the, you know, the dynamic changing? Is it becoming a more competitive and more efficiently priced market? Yeah, I I think the whole concept of partnership, we've talked about that. Like I said, I've been in the business a very long time. If you look back at reinsurance, when I started, like in 1986, it was very much a commodity market. Uh, But margins were a little bit different back then. Just the the seeding companies' margins were different. So most business was seeded on an excess basis. Uh, So there wasn't, we were kind of an afterthought in the process. So it's, you know, the direct companies kept most of the business, reinsurers just participated in kind of a small share of it. But over time, particularly with, for example, preferred underwriting, reinsurers took a more aggressive view of mortality and preferred underwriting. So, you know, that opened up partnerships to grow uh, and share more business. So it became more of a first dollar quota share business, you know, but even back then, we weren't really operating with a lot of data that we were using. Much of our business was more of a, you know, a spreadsheet type of business where you didn't have seriatim data to really help drive your decisions and, and understand performance. Now that's changed a lot. We have a lot of data we can use. Uh, there's a lot more to explore in the market as well. I think reinsurers have positioned themselves effectively as experts in underwriting and exploring different partnerships that I think brings a lot more value to, to the seeding companies. So it's, it's much more of a partnership business. There's so much more to explore. This whole acceleration of underwriting, I think you know we're all gathering information and sharing it and working together to really understand what the future looks like. And I think that puts reinsurers in a much better position to partner than, than we have historically. And uh, from a pricing perspective, is life reinsurance similar to PNC in that there's like an underwriting cycle where carriers retain more and more and swell, and then they get religion at some point and move back to retaining less? Like, how, do, how does that work? Or is it very constant and stable? It, it's more constant, I would say. I mean, there's there have been some cycles, if you look back in the life reinsurance space, one of them when I talked about preferred underwriting. That was one where you know, session rates prior to that were probably like 10% or less. And then preferred underwriting came in and reinsurers were participating more 80, 90% of the risk went to, to reinsurers in some situations. I don't think that's a very healthy situation to be in, honestly, because usually it means we're seeing something so different, you know, that it, it's not aligned. We don't really have that yeah. true partnership or alignment with our with our seeding companies. So we went through a cycle kind of the late 80s, early 90s. And then that kind of continued, you know, to, up to around 2000, where session rates were pretty high. Now, reinsurers kind of realized that I think, you know, this isn't right. And as experience started to develop, we realized 
okay, we didn't really get this right. So the price has changed. And I think that drove more of a alignment around mortality where before there was a misalignment where reinsurers a little bit more aggressive. So I think this alignment, you know, now that you have in the market has driven a more rational session rate of like around 25 to 35%, which I think is, is a much better place to be. So yeah, PNC is more, it, it's more of a cycle of, you know, it's a hard market and everybody takes advantage of the reinsurers, take advantage of that. And then they almost know they're going to enter into this soft market where, yeah. you know, prices aren't going to be rational. I could never quite get my, you know, head around that where. <laughs> you know, get you know, yeah. So, uh, so the cycles are much more distinct, although I think they become a little less distinct. Those, uh, those hard markets don't seem to last as long as they used to on the PNC side and uh, you get to the soft market quicker, but, but it, it is a different market. So SCORE offers the Velogica underwriting engine and system. How important has this been, you know, as a cornerstone of the offering? You know, Munich Re has MRAS, RGA has Aura. I can't remember what Swiss's engine is called, but how's Velogica differentiated? And then how much crossover do you see with your reinsurance business? Is it very common that clients will utilize this tool and service or is it really a, an independent business? It, it's been very much a part of our business. Uh, Logic, I guess one thing that sets it apart is it's been around a long time. I mean, this goes back to the Transamerica days, 2005, 2006, where they really started to launch this, but it's really evolved. It started out as a kind of a simplified underwriting acceleration model where you could have a more predictable result in simplified underwriting. And to be honest with you, it really, I think, kind of stayed that way for, for quite a while until, honestly, when you know, SCORE, SCORE acquired Transamerica and then Generali, we started to think, how can we use this in the mainstream market? How do we take Velogica to the next level of making it you know, more in the preferred space, the fully underwritten space, and not just simplified underwriting? So I guess the thing that kind of sets it apart, it's been around much longer than any of the other, other uh, models. The other thing that sets it apart is we really just focus on the underwriting decision and not the workbench. Yeah, we, you know, we're not really interested in being in the software business in the sense of the entire workbench. We think there are other companies that are better suited to that. You know, we're really focused on the underwriting decision and, uh, and everything that we can do to add value in that process. That's our core skill set. So Velogica works on taking data sources and giving an underwriting decision that could be used either in an acceleration model, helps decide whether you're going to accelerate or not, or it can make the decision as well. And we've evolved into working with predictive model into Velogica and continue to look at it as how do we make this one of the key components that we can help our clients make their underwriting decisions more consistently, more effectively, and, and faster. And I, and I assume it makes your client partnerships stickier. I, what's the average tenure of a client? Oh, we've had, we've had some clients that have been around you know, from that 2005 era that still use the system today. Yeah. And then we've had newer ones that have used it more in the accelerated model that have been with us really going back to, you know, shortly after the, the Generali acquisition, when we started to integrate this more into that space. Another one, still have another major one that 
has gone from using it in the simplified underwriting space to now bringing predictive modeling into their into the process fully integrate this into their underwriting process so so yeah the, the most of the customers that come on stick around for a very long time amazing and um so you know we got to know each other through our 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 partnership with score. And I just want to shout out, you have an amazing team in uh, Richard and Manisha, just f fabulous people. Yeah. How do you view MGUs, MGAs in partnerships and, you know, any general thoughts on the insure tech landscape? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I appreciate those comments on Richard and Manisha. I agree a hundred percent, you know, and I think this is, that's why we started this group. I remember I met Manisha when she was up in Canada working with our, our team up there and recruited her to come to the U.S. as mm -hmm. we built this team that was really focused on exploring the ecosystem and looking for you know, different ways to partner and to expand our knowledge of what we're doing in that area, which was really a big step for us because part of it was we didn't want to step on the toes of our clients in their distribution sources and what they're doing. We really don't have an interest in owning distribution, but our interest is learning from distribution. Like we learned so much from working with you about your approach and your new thoughts and ideas. We've worked to get a little bit closer to some other distribution sources just to really understand what they're doing and what their thoughts are to test our own concepts of what we have that we've learned through really exploring the whole ecosystem of insure techs, distributors, uh, new distributors, and then trying to, to bring them together with our, our client, our traditional clients to help innovate and grow. So for us, you know, that team, you know, Richard, Manisha, and everybody that works on that team is really focused on how do we do things differently? How do we accelerate? And what can we learn? And how can we bring people together to build something? So that that's been you know just a great experience for us, and I think it's our it's our path to the future. You know, we 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 continue to support our customers in a traditional way as well, but I think there's so much going on in the market. The more we can learn and grow, the more value we bring to our traditional customers to help them grow as well. Yeah, I mean, reflecting on what you're saying, when we were just getting started without a reinsurer support, we couldn't have gotten our first carrier deal to build a you know, proprietary products and, and get started in doing what we're doing. It was critical to have their blessing and confidence and, you know, partnership on the risk retention. So. Well, likewise, I think for us too, I think that's what we realized is, you know, innovation, it's still life insurance is still a very conservative business Yeah. and for good reasons. I mean, they've survived and very few failures in the history of life insurance. So that conservative nature is built into you know the organization, and anytime something new comes in, it gets scrutinized and run through the legal process, compliance, regulatory, and oftentimes dies you know during that process. So we realize for us to try to get more on the front end to partner with you and other companies to really learn and then bring that to our customers as a risk partner. They're more willing to do that if we do some of the vetting up front. And we connect each other, then then I think we have we felt we have more likelihood of success, which is true, and I think we bring change to the market as well. And um, so you know we share a passion in working to close the gap of uninsured or underinsured people. 
Can you share how SCORE is thinking about bridging this gap? Do you think this is an obvious place for InsureTech to help solve by, you know, eliminating costs in the transaction? You know, in general, how do you think about it? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, obviously the, the potential, the opportunity is there. There's been enough articles written on it. There's enough research that's been done to say there are a large group of people that, you know, don't have access to insurance. They want insurance, don't have access to it because the market has kind of moved on from, you know, that market, which is really where I started when I was selling life insurance. That list of 100 people that I put together were friends and family in my small town, Yeah. right? They're not, you know, it's not an affluent community. So it's not as if they're being approached by every broker in the market who's focused on the affluent market. You know, so I feel that over time, you know, life insurance companies kind of moved away from that model of developing their own distribution, supporting new people coming into the market, which really taps into that kitchen table, small market, you know, sales. They felt like I get more if I go to the brokerage market and you know, go after an affluent market. I can't afford to go after the small policies, yeah. right? So I think there's this tremendous opportunity out there there's a need out there there's a demand but you know the traditional system can't afford to get there they can't find a way to say oh it's worth my time to sell a $25,000 life insurance policy because i don't want to have to go call on that person four times to get a sale so how can you accelerate that how can you get the message out in a more cost effective way in a less invasive way that that moves people through the process more efficiently and more effectively that then allows you know uh you know a new distribution idea and so, you know source to come in and tap into things differently because the old way isn't going to get it done so how do we get there and how do we get the message out and that's one of the things i really appreciate about ethos i think that commitment and that focus and that ability to get to people differently and tap into that market. That's something we're very passionate about. You know, how can we, you know, change the underwriting process, you know, make decisions a little bit differently, uh, more cost effective that allows companies like you, distributors like you and our partners to make it more cost effective to get into that market. So really us focusing kind of on that risk piece of it, and then also understanding the dist new distribution so then we can give our blessing and say, we're interested in taking this risk. I think that's what we can do to help on the process. Makes sense. So let's turn to your leadership. I've heard you been described as unflappable in the face of, you know, volatility, just, you know, steady. How would your team describe your leadership style? Well, it's, I mean, that's nice to hear that, you know, I guess that's really a good question for the team. I mean, for me personally, I value being a part of a team. And I think there's a lot of power in people working together. And there's a lot of power of everybody feeling they have an equal say at the table. You know, and I think, you know, I've, I've worked for companies and I've worked for people who are the smartest guy in the room, you know, and they make sure that you know they're the smartest guy in the room. And I think that really mutes all of the other voices that are there and limits you know, the opportunity to learn and grow from the people who are sitting at the table. So for me, it's, 
I feel like I'm another person at the table. I mean, I might have this title and yeah, if something's going to happen, I'm going to take the heat for it. But I think we, we do it as a team. And I think if you do that, if you lead that way and your team is really feeling like they're a part of something, that just extends through the organization, right? It's everybody leads in a way that includes everybody. And if you do that, I think there's a lot of power in that. I mean, I've always been lucky because I've never been the smartest guy in the room. So it makes it easy for me to sit at the table and, you know, and, and approach things that way. But I think, you know, if more people had that attitude, I think they get more out of your organization. You know, and I, I think we've made a lot of progress at, at SCORE. We, we still have a ways to go. I mean, every day, you know, every day I feel like I learn a little bit more and I grow a little bit more and I need to be more aware and conscious of how people are feeling and make sure that I'm inclusive and every interaction I have is respectful and appreciative with every person in the organization. And then I think that, you know, that creates, I think, some power and some enthusiasm and people feeling like they're a part of something, you know, as opposed to having a job, right? That's the last thing I want people to feel is I'm going to my job today. I want them to go, you know, to score, to collaborate, to work together, to build something together. And I think if we all lead that way, then, then you know, that, that spreads through the organization and people really feel connected to that. And how do you manage the business day-to-day? Do you spend most of your time with clients, working on new business, reviewing profitability and results and data, managing through your team? Like what's your, you know, what's your typical week? Yeah, you know, I spend less time with clients than I used to. You know, I, I love that part of it. You know, I, I think it's extremely important to spend time with clients and connect with clients. I think it's more our plan. Are we executing on our plan? Where are we? You know, what does the organization look like? Do we have the right skills and talent? Are we developing people the right way? You know, are we moving forward as an organization? So I spent a lot of time kind of working around the plan. I'm on the global leadership team as well. So you know, I spend time connecting with, with the, the global group as well. But it's just more, are we on the right path? Is, you know, it, we define a path of where we want to go. Are we making progress with that? And then, you know, do we need to change that? You know, do we need to alter things? Are we, is, does it still hold up the way we thought it held up six months ago? So a lot of it is focused around the plan and moving forward. A lot of it's around talent in the organization. Are we developing the right people? Are we connecting our people in a meaningful way? So yeah, that's where I spend most of my time. Richard and Manisha are the ones that get to do the fun stuff and connect in the market more. And then just you know, me connecting with them and learning more about what's going on and doing whatever I can to make sure we're supporting all that and you know, connecting the organization in a meaningful way. Amazing. So. Um, let's get to know you personally. I've heard that you host the most elaborate Halloween parties and that your costumes are impeccable. What's your favorite costume that you've ever brought to the table? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, my wife and I are both, you know, we, we really enjoy Halloween and you do all the decorations outside and we host the party. Not a huge party, maybe like 30 people or so, but everybody who comes has to be in costume. And uh, so we really get into that every year. We've had a Batman costume, uh, which that was pretty elaborate. It was like an authentic one. But I have to say there were, there were two. There was one where uh, 
I was dressed up as the Joker and my wife was dressed up as Harley Quinn. So it was like the modern day Joker. I like that one a lot. There was one where uh, I was dressed up as uh, a pimp <laughs> and my wife had like the appropriate outfit, uh, you know, to, to go along with me. We should have asked for fun. photos ahead of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some good photos. Yeah. But it's it's just fun. I, I think uh, that's just an escape. Right. And, you know, when you invite people to come over and they get in costume, they get to be somebody else for the day. And yeah. uh, so you just get in character and just have a good time and always appreciate having that time with my friends in a, in a different kind of way. I once uh, reused the same Halloween costume three years in a row, but with three different takes on it, Cowboy, Marlboro Man, and Indiana Jones. And oh, I like that. it was yeah. the lazy way to do it. Yeah, well, you're much more cost effective than, than we are because we just pile these costumes up every <laughs> year. <laughs> What's your favorite place to vacation? Oh, we uh, we love to go to Turks and Caicos. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been to Turks and Caicos yeah. before. It's, uh, I mean, just a beautiful place. I mean, it's it's starting to become more and more discovered. And we went there, my wife and I went there on our honeymoon back in, in 2012. And then our family has gone there. I think we've been there seven times now. Hmm. And so we stay at this place called the Grace Bay Club. And they have units that are like condo units so you can have the whole family on one floor and uh, just beautiful white sand beaches the clearest water blue water you've ever seen anywhere i mean it's and the people are so friendly and where we stay it's easy to walk to a grocery store or restaurants and you feel like you're a part of the community but it's just such a gorgeous place and our kids kids love to go there that all the water sports all the stuff to do and it's not it's not super crowded. It's uh, it's very nice. So that's that's an easy easy question to answer. That's our favorite place. Sounds lovely. And then, do you have a favorite uh, leadership book for our listeners to read? You know, I don't really have one book in particular. I would say, you know, kind of self exploration is one that I think has been really helpful for me. And there's this book called The Untethered Soul, hmm. which really isn't about leadership, but it's about yourself. And kind of understanding yourself and some of how you process information and how you process feelings and kind of like how you were from birth kind of uh you know trained a certain way and that book was really a book that helped me kind of think about myself which helped me show up in a different way i think as a leader as a person so i'm really big into the you know self-exploration stuff um i mean simon Sinek's books too are great and and talks i mean i really think the the purpose-driven things uh are really I, I think good to like think about what's the purpose and what you're doing how do you connect people around that um, but I, I think kind of this you know more self-exploration i think helps you as a leader as much as a leadership book in particular yeah and leading without ego mm -hmm. yeah exactly Wonderful. Well, JC, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I feel like this was just a really insightful session into how reinsurance works, how you operate as a leader and just getting to know you personally. So thank you for taking the time. I'm sure our listeners uh, got a lot out of this. Oh, Peter, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for the partnership as well. Likewise. Likewise. We're so enthusiastic about what we're doing together. So yep, as, as we are. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much and take care and have a great day. All right. Thank you, Peter. 
Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of What's Your Ethos? If you're interested in helping to protect the next million families, come join us. You can learn more about ethos at ethoslife.com. I'll see you next time.